Hi, I'm Cardiff Garcia, and this is The New Bazaar. Coming up on today's show... There are these economic bounties available in China, but to get there, you have to pass through Communist Party censorship. Eric Schwartzel on Hollywood, China, and the clash between economic ideals and political reality. Eric Schwartzel is the author of a new book called Red Carpet, Hollywood, China, and the Global Battle for Cultural Supremacy. And the book is all about how, over the past couple of decades, the emergence of a huge middle class in China has become an incredibly attractive market and maybe even a necessary market for Hollywood movies. But the Chinese government carefully censors what kinds of movies can be shown in China, and it's also sensitive about how China is portrayed in movies abroad. So if you are a Hollywood studio and you want to get your movie shown in China, you kind of have to go along with the criteria that the Chinese censors give you. And Hollywood studios have done just that. In a lot of cases, they've imposed restrictions all across the entire creative process of making a movie, starting with the script itself. And they've done a lot of other things, too. And as Eric explains in the chat, all of this has fundamentally changed Hollywood's entire business model and the kinds of movies that it makes. But there is a deeper story that Eric is telling in his book, and it's about the messy realities of globalization itself. Now, this podcast is often touched on the various parts of globalization, trade between countries, immigration, the ability to invest in the economy of another country besides the one you live in. And most of the time, these are all really wonderful things. They do lead to more prosperity, better lives, more choices for what people can do with their lives. I really believe all that, and there's a lot of evidence for it. But that does not mean that globalization can't have bad side effects. And if you believe in that overall idea that globalization is a good thing, then I would also argue that you can't look away from its negative consequences and just pretend they don't exist. Doing that undermines your own arguments. And that's why I love Eric's book. It does not do that. Red Carpet is all about understanding the real-world nuances of how trade with China has sometimes led to a clash of values, so that on the one hand, you have things like free speech, artistic integrity, the ability to express yourself fully through movies and other cultural objects without fear of censorship. And then on the other hand, you have the deepening commercial ties between two countries, which should be great. And so when these things are set against each other, it is sad, but more to the point, you should acknowledge the clash and try to understand it in all its subtlety. That is just my opinion. And that is also what Eric does in his book. And it's what Eric and I try to do in our chat. Here it is. Eric Schwartzel, thanks for being on The New Bazaar. Hey, I'm happy to be here. Thank you. So you and I first spoke a couple of years ago when you wrote an article in The Wall Street Journal about how some of the stars of the Fast and Furious franchise had put into their contracts that they cannot lose fights in the movies. In other words, when they're acting, they cannot be portrayed as having lost a fight. Right. That was such a great story. And it was my first introduction to your writing, but it kind of seems, and this is tied to today's theme about your book, that your beat is not just the movies. It's kind of how 
art, culture, and commerce all overlap and influence each other in some strange and unexpected ways. Is that a fair characterization of what you do? I think so. I think that's a generous characterization. I mean, I think the beat is movies and ruining movies for people because I I do love (laughs) the stories that really pull back the curtain on what goes into the movies we see. Um, because when you start to just scratch the surface, it seems like there's there's quite a bit. I mean, in, in the story you referenced, it was Vin Diesel making sure that his sister was there during rehearsals to make sure that she counted the number of punches that her brother received versus the number that were received by The Rock. Um, I mean, that those oh, kinds of yeah. debates and negotiations <laughs> certainly happen a lot on a movie like Fast and Furious. There's a lot of big egos there. That and, doesn't ruin a movie, though. That makes it way more interesting in my opinion. There's little details. I mean, when I was writing that story, it turned that movie into a math problem because I had to watch these scenes (laughs) where I was like counting like, okay, so Vin Diesel was just thrown through a wall. So that means that Dwayne Johnson's going to get thrown through a wall in a minute here. And then, of course, like there's a there's a dramatic problem because when you don't have the winner of a fight, how does any plot move forward? So that's why when you're watching these movies, there's often this like deus ex machina, like there's an explosion or like a riot breaks out or something happens before one person can be the definitive winner over another. Um, that's not why we're here today, though. I understand that. <laughs> Still a story I'm a little obsessed with. But you're absolutely right. I think the book, I, I set out to write this book because it felt like the Chinese influence implicit and explicit in American movies was far greater than any sort of one actor's contract could stipulate, right? It was just this kind of systemic and almost existential influence on Hollywood that I think started in the late 90s and continues today. Yeah, and it also, I think, reveals that there are these sorts of hidden influences that go into the creative process very early on that we're sometimes not always aware of. Because I think it's easy for a lot of us, and certainly I thought this for a very long time, to believe that a movie at least begins in its earliest seminal stages as an idea in somebody's brain. And then they start writing it down. And yeah, there's commercial considerations. Maybe they want to add like some explosions here and there uh, or some comedic lines here and there to make it more fun along the way. Um, But that it at least starts as a very personal thing. And one of the things your book shows is that these influences to the creative process of making a movie can actually start very, very early. And they're all about like the political or commercial backdrop in which a movie might be made and not necessarily limited to what's in the imagination of a filmmaker or a writer or a producer or a director. And that's especially the case over the past decade because China's box office starting around 2008, 2009, started to grow at a rapid clip just as the U.S. box office started to flatline. So if you're running a studio and you're making one of these big-budget movies, you have to account for China in deciding whether or not to make it at all. And increasingly, the studios have become the smaller and smaller fish in these larger corporate ponds. So that means a lot of the studios that maybe 20 or 30 years ago had a more diverse slate of films. They might have smaller budgeted films. They might they might have movies that they don't necessarily need to ship around the world. Increasingly, the studios, whether it's Warner Brothers or Universal, they're all looking at what they call the tentpole titles, which are the four or five movies that they can make every year for between 100 and $300 million and that they can release around the world. And hopefully, if all goes according to plan, sell you know more than a billion dollars 
of tickets to. Those are movies that need to not just appeal to China and the U.S., but frankly need to appeal to everyone. To hit those kinds of numbers, you have to be sort of the biggest tent possible. And, and increasingly, as China's box office started to grow, it had more and more of a say in what those movies looked like and what themes they might explore, especially because to get into the Chinese market, which was becoming the biggest in the world, you have to pass Chinese censorship. So that's the key difference there. That's why you have to think a lot about the lines of dialogue that might trip up those censors, the scenes that take place in China that might trip up those censors. That's why the, the dynamic is there, is that there's this, there are these economic bounties available in China, but to get there, you have to pass through Communist Party censorship. Yeah, and I I love that as an early elucidation of the thesis of the book. But there's a lot in the book about the kind of deep history of both the American and Chinese movie industries. And I kind of actually want to start there because there's a lot there that I found quite surprising. So let me start on the U.S. side. I had not realized that U.S. dominance in the film industry was partly a result of World War One essentially causing so much devastation to the European film industries because it existed in cities that were now being bombed and hollowed out, but that the U.S. actually started a little bit behind Europe. And this enabled the U.S. not just to catch up, but to really surpass everywhere else in the world because suddenly there were shortages of films and the U.S. was able to sort of fill that void because obviously in the U.S. it wasn't being bombed during World War I. And so here we were making the movies and that's what enabled the U.S. to zoom ahead. That's fascinating. And also fascinating was that very early on in the 1920s, foreign audiences were already huge parts of the American film industry. Can you kind of just give us a sense of what was going on in those early years when it comes to the U.S., its film industry, and what it was trying to accomplish by selling so much overseas? Right. This was a surprise to me, too. I had gone into the reporting of this book thinking that the global nature of Hollywood was a relatively recent development. Um, And you're right that after World War I, when the U.S. was able to catch up to these European film capitals like Paris and Berlin, There was this other thing that was happening, which is that the U.S. cultural identity was being formed in real time through the movies, whereas in France, in Germany, the films being made there were seen as as more just reflections of a culture that was already quite entrenched and, frankly, older than that in America. And so there's this theory that because America, which at that time was this melting pot of a country, it was able to have a kind of universality to its storytelling that some of the European markets did not. And you're right that even back in the 20s, whenever the, for example, whenever the talkie was invented, some of the studio chiefs here in Hollywood were so bullish on their cultural power that they thought that the talkie would turn English into a global language, that it would be the movie that would essentially make English, the the language of, of the masses. Yeah, to be clear, talkie, you mean a talking film because, of course, before the 1920s, all movies were silent. Exactly. And now you can actually hear people speaking English. Right, exactly, exactly. So starting in the late 1920s, whenever, whenever people are speaking on screen too, they're speaking English, and that's then being shipped overseas as well. And then through the 1930s and 40s, something very interesting happens with World War II, which is that Hollywood is essentially conscripted to help the war effort. And and following World War II, 
there's this really seminal moment in history of Hollywood government relations, and it pertains to the Marshall Plan. And I think it's sort of the next kind of chapter in what you're describing, which is Hollywood's relationship with the world. After after the fighting stops in Europe and the U.S. rushes in with the Marshall Plan, which was this massive sort of rebuilding effort being overseen by the State Department, but it was also something of— Of Europe, by the way, of destroyed parts of the world, you know. It was seen at the time, and I think it's still seen as a form of— American generosity, but as you're describing, it was also a way to kind of try to propagate American values overseas, which is part of what was going on with the film industry, right? Right. It was also something of a branding exercise because there was this effort to not just reunify Europe, but also sell Europeans on the virtues of the democratic model. And so movies started to be shipped over, not, you know, alongside all of the rehabilitation efforts, the movies were sent as kind of the hearts and minds component of the Marshall Plan efforts. And it was ex- it's examples like that throughout history that I think have kind of established Hollywood as something of an inherently American industry. And that is an an impression of Hollywood that I think has has strained in the last 20 years or so, because I don't think a lot of people here working in Hollywood view themselves as stewards of an American industry the way that their predecessors in the mid-20th century and even into the late 20th century did. Yeah, I love that point, by the way, of how Hollywood was, especially in those early decades of the teens, 20s, and 30s, uh, it was kind of like a marriage of a still youthful country and a very young new cultural industry. Because, of course, in everything else, the U.S. was kind of catching up, right? Painting, classical music, and so forth, uh, literature. Movies were something where America could compete, and not just compete, but essentially win, if you want to use the language of competition, from a very early stage. And so you sort of had this combination of the U.S. being genuinely ahead of other countries in terms of, like, the sophistication of the movie-making technology, you know, the, the interestingness, I guess, of the films that it was making, and it was using its tools as expressions of culture, expressions of geopolitical power overseas. So it seems like both things were going on. Legitimately, the U.S. was really good at this, but also it was using the film industry as a a geopolitical tool. And the extent to which it was using the film industry as a tool like that was something that I just hadn't quite realized. I just hadn't thought of. But you could see why other countries might then in later decades become a little bit paranoid about all these American movies being shown where they are because they might want their own domestic film industries to to compete as well. So that that's not just a China story. That's France and other places as well, right? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, and it's also important to remember that in the early 20th century, this was another surprising thing to me. You're right that Woodrow Wilson was one of the first officials to identify the emotional power of movies. He gave a speech in the early 1920s, I think it's called something like Men Are Governed by Their Emotions. And he talks about how the movie can become this arm. And and at that around that same time, Hollywood was described as an adjunct of the State Department. But it was also interesting because there's an example throughout the book, I think, of 
China occupying a role that America at one time occupied. And in that time, around the 1920s, it was this. A lot of the skeptics that you described in Europe, they not only were a little protectionist and worried about American culture coming and sublimating their own, but they also saw American culture, and especially the American movie, as rather de class A when you would compare it to the opera or the theater. It was seen as this kind of low-rent Lowbrow, lowbrow, yeah, exactly. uh, This lowbrow form of entertainment, and even more of a parallel to China today. America was seen as a marketplace for sort of pirated products and counterfeit goods. It was seen as this sort of like, rather just sort of like the cheaper alternative to to these more sophisticated European capitals. Of course, certainly a perception of China that a lot of people have today too, a country where its film and TV output is not as sophisticated as that of the Americans and also as America was in the early 20th century, a place for for counterfeit or kind of just copied goods. Yeah, that's super interesting. Uh, And I want to talk also about the deeper history of what was happening with the Chinese uh, film industry. You go as far back as what was happening to the film industry during the time of Mao and how there were already back then restrictions on foreign films being shown in China. There were kind of frustrated ambitions to project Chinese cultural power abroad as well. And there was already censorship of Chinese movie making in addition to all those things. And so it seems like there's actually quite a long past that we're dealing with here. This isn't like some new thing um, when it comes to Chinese censorship and, and the sort of the barriers that its domestic filmmakers have to go through to get something shown. This goes back, I mean, gosh, almost almost a full century now, right? Right. And it, and it really does start with Mao. There's there's a speech that Mao gave in the 1940s where he talked about the role of art in the state. And really, you can read it today, and it describes basically the role of art in today's Chinese state. He really set the set the template there. And basically, it boils down to this. As, as Mao put it, there is no such thing as art for art's sake, that art should serve the state, it should reflect the state, and it should at any given time be a mirror image to the state's priorities, its alliances, its values. And this really meant, you can imagine how American movies would fly in a, in a market like that. Essentially, after Mao's revolution and he comes to power, the Chinese population is completely shut off to, to Western influences. There are only really a few, like a handful of documented examples of American movies being shown in China for several decades. One of them, rather hilariously, was the Christopher Reeve Superman, which came out in the late 1970s. It didn't last very long in Chinese theaters because Communist Party officials saw it and described Superman as a narcotic of the capitalist class. And then through the 1980s and 90s, as the American movie is really sweeping the globe. I mean, think about think about the 1980s alone when you have movies like Back to the Future, or Dirty Dancing, really just kind of branding America more effectively than anything else could, turning America into what one political scientist called an empire by invitation, a place where there was just sort of too cool not to want to live in or, or support. You know, China's functioning as something of a cultural dark side of the moon. There's really nothing nothing there from the outside getting in. And, and so you're absolutely right. I mean, I think for a lot of Chinese people, especially, I mean, older ones still alive today, 
they came of age at a time when the only entertainment you would really see was largely medicinal, propagandistic movies and TV shows that had been approved and in some cases produced by the state. Yeah. And in your book, there's this interesting uh, anecdote here going to what you were saying about how there was only one American movie that not just breached China's borders, but was also kind of actively embraced and shown there. In the three decades from 1951 to 1981, it was a movie called Salt of the Earth. And apparently it was embraced because it was like this really strident anti-capitalist movie. So I got I got kind of a kick out of it. They found like the one American-made movie that most directly challenged like American commercial ideology or whatever you want to call it. And that was the one they let in and were showing. But that was it for three whole decades into the 1980s, uh, which I found to be just uh, quite striking, you know. Um, And I'm curious to know if you also were surprised by how long it took for American movies to start being considered for a Chinese audience in the decades after the 1980s, because If you look back, the opening up of the Chinese economy to the rest of the world kind of started around the 1970s. Nixon goes to China, big changes under Deng Xiaoping. Um, But it took a very long time before China started even kind of interacting, it seems, with American movie makers and I guess, you know, with American officials, government officials to to sort of figure out when it was or how it was that they were going to start allowing some American movies in. And so your book really takes off in the 1990s. But I'm just curious to know if if you found this shocking that it just took such a long time. It wasn't shocking when I realized that really what had persuaded Chinese officials to allow Hollywood movies in had more to do with what was happening in China than it did with what was happening in the rest of the world. I think, first of all, Letting Hollywood movies in to a Communist Party official is much scarier than letting Boeing in, right? There, I mean, even back in that speech I referenced of Mao's, he talks quite a bit about having to police the artistic output of other nations, to worry not just about what your own people see, but to worry about what audiences elsewhere are seeing and ingesting of your story, right? And so... To your point about salt of the earth, Mao also would would often say that it was important to learn from foreigners, if you could, to watch and see how they did things and then see if you could adapt it to your own to your own system, right? So a movie like Salt of the Earth is very appealing for Communist Party officials who are trying to make their own movies about the the ills of capitalism. And I think though that the key thing to remember, because you're right, the The modernization and the Deng Xiaoping era started before Hollywood movies started flowing into China in 1994. But the reason they started flowing in was because Chinese movie theaters were performing so poorly. Chinese movie theaters, I mean, despite having a massive population even back in the 90s, the country was pretty underscreened. It didn't have nearly as many movie theaters as a population that size could support, largely because it was still a very rural population. But in the early 90s, the theaters start performing very poorly because pirated Hollywood films start flowing into the market. TVs become more commonplace, and so do karaoke lounges. So suddenly, that really dry, boring, medicinal propaganda movie that's the only option on Friday night isn't your only entertainment option. And the theaters start 
seeing their revenues drop. And as in the U.S., if a movie theater starts to perform poorly, it can have consequences for all of the real estate around it, right? If you're a movie theater in a mall, if you if you depress foot traffic in a shopping plaza, it can really impact a lot of the, the businesses around it. So these Hollywood executives saw an opening and they said, you know, one thing that might goose ticket sales for these struggling theaters is letting a few Hollywood movies in and they're more appealing. And, you know, suddenly you might see some some revenue jumps. And they do. I mean, the numbers just skyrocket. Ticket sales explode. The first movie allowed in in 1984 is The Fugitive with Harrison Ford. It makes $3 million, which is pocket change for a studio, but just an absolute blockbuster for China in a, in a place where tickets were still, yeah, you know. at the time, to be clear, back then. Back then, <laughs> that, yeah. That was yeah, a blockbuster yeah. back then. Yeah, right blo- it's certainly a blockbuster back then. Yeah, $3 million today, yeah, and what might cost <laughs> a few people their jobs. But um, but certainly back then, really, really a, a massive film. And it allowed the the Communist Party officials to basically do what they often do, which is dole out that Western influence piecemeal, right? They, they oftentimes, if they will let a guard down, if they will let a wall down and let Western influence into their country, they have to do it on their terms. And in that original deal in 1994, that meant capping the number of Hollywood releases at 10 a year and also making sure that it, each film was viewed and approved by Chinese Communist Party censors. And also... And this gets to Mao's point about making others do the work for you. They would also only give distribution agreements on those Hollywood films to theaters that had agreed to allocate a set amount of money each year to the production of Chinese movies. So they essentially used the revenue from those successful Hollywood movies to fuel the production of domestic Chinese product as well. Yeah, it's fascinating because... Your book is essentially about this inversion because it, it it's the case now that Hollywood studios are desperate to get that Chinese audience because it represents so much money. But in 1994, the desperation was flowing in the other direction. These Chinese movie theaters could only offer these very kind of propagandistic, boring Chinese-made movies of the time. And so they were desperate to get movies that people would – actually want to see. What a novel strategy. Like, get some movies that are actually pretty good, and then maybe people will go watch movies, you know? Oh, yeah. And and for the studio chiefs, like, they didn't really give it a second thought. And if there was a benefit to showing a movie in China, it was not that $3 million, that measly $3 million you could make, but really it was more about changing consumer behavior and trying to get more and more Chinese citizens from pirating their movies and buying pirated DVDs. Yeah. And then a few years later, something really quite fascinating happens uh, when two movies are made, one by Sony, which is uh, Seven Years in Tibet, starring Brad Pitt, another movie called Kundun, which is made by Disney. And both of those movies, which I think are released around the same time in the mid to late 90s, depict a very flattering portrayal of the Dalai Lama and a very unflattering portrayal of Chinese repression of Tibet. And both of these movies get made and it causes a real stink for the studios because the Chinese officials who are made aware that these movies are coming are really quite furious and they start threatening the business of these, the other business of these companies in China. And that is a big deal. So Disney's ability to open a theme park 
in China somewhere is now suddenly threatened by the making of this movie. And in the case of Sony, it has other things that it wants to do in China. And so now you start to see the real clash between uh, the American movie-making interest and Chinese political interest. So can you kind of describe what the fallout and significance was of that episode? Yeah, and, and can we just first acknowledge how bizarre it is that there were two movies being made about the Dalai Lama at the same yeah. time? I mean, yeah, like Deadly Asteroid is one thing. Uh, two movies about some superhero exploits is another. But two movies were made in 1997 about a young Dalai Lama. And <laughs> um, and you're right. I mean, this is 1997. So here we are on the timeline. We're three years into Hollywood movies being shown in China at all. And as I said, no one's really thinking about the Chinese box office. There certainly are some executives in Hollywood who at the time can tell that China's going to mean something someday. I mean, you didn't need to be a genius to see that there was a big population there and there was a modernizing economy. So there was there was a sense that that eventually it would be worth paying attention to, but no one was worried about losing business or or making a lot of money there when those movies were put into production. And so Whenever the films, when Seven Years in Tibet and Kundin are, they start filming, phone calls go to Sony and Disney, in one case from the Chinese embassy, saying, we understand you're making this movie, and we'd really appreciate it if you didn't. And in fact, these movies should not come out. And and this is also to, this is set up beautifully here, like this is, this also speaks to Mao Zedong's idea of policing the output of other controlling your narrative in other countries as well. Despite the Chinese box office really being minuscule at this point, Chinese authorities do have leverage over Sony and Disney in other ways. Eric, that side note you made is really important. When you say it's not just about policing what's shown in China, but about elsewhere, what you mean is that Chinese officials wouldn't have just been happy for some kind of an edited down version to be shown in China. They didn't want China to be portrayed in certain ways in all other markets. So in the U.S., in Europe, in other places where these movies were going to screen. And so that's one of the things they were worried about. That's actually a super important point that you just made. Yeah, and it is it is one element of the Hollywood-China dynamic that makes China different than almost any other market. And oftentimes, studio executives will say, you know, I don't know why you're making such a big deal about censoring movies for China. We censor movies for all sorts of countries. We censor movies for airplanes. And that's true, but no other country is requiring the censoring of movies shown outside their own borders the way China does. And back in 1997, the leverage that these authorities had over Disney and Sony was not at the box office, but at the parent companies. So in the case of Sony, you can imagine the disruption that an angry China could have on a Japanese-owned electronics firm with a massive supply chain in China. And when it came to Disney, there were already at this time conversations being had about the potential for a theme park on the mainland. There were already toys flowing in to China. There was also really aggressive negotiating being done to get a Disney channel into China at the time. So Disney as well is saying, oh, this movie is not about this, you know, angering authorities. This movie is jeopardizing a 20-year plan we had for what is going to be the biggest economy in the world. They also know, though, that they can't cancel the films because that's just going to alienate a bunch of people here in the U.S. And as awareness of China's anger grows, there actually are even some preemptive efforts to warn Sony and Disney 
that they better not cancel these films or else they're going to have a lot of filmmakers and actors and producers very angry at them. So they approach it in different ways. Sony undergoes this massive behind-the-scenes charm offensive where there is a, um, a government relations executive here named Hope Boonshaft who starts just meeting almost compulsively with the consulate and the embassy and anyone and she can. gifts and she takes, like She that, takes, yeah. them, takes them a lot of gifts and, and offerings and she teaches herself Mandarin and, and tries to do whatever she can to stay in their good graces. Hosts screenings of Chinese films on the Sony lot to try and just win uh, and build up some some political capital. Disney has Henry Kissinger on retainer to help with such things, and and they fly him to the embassy in D.C. to try and tell the officials, you know, hey, look, it's bad for both of us if we cancel this film. You're going to look like bullies. We're going to be criticized. So what they decide to do is they say we're going to release this Kundin film, but we are going to try to bury it as much as possible. So they release it on Christmas Day on a handful of screens. It doesn't do any business. I don't know how what, how well it was going to do if they'd released it nationwide, to be honest. I mean, who knows what the market was for a big, serious biopic about a young Dalai Lama. But nonetheless, they bury the film, and it still is not enough. Sony and Disney, just by virtue of making this these movies and releasing them anywhere in the world, are temporarily banned from China. So you can imagine how this is being absorbed by everyone else making movies here in Hollywood. And I think it explains how China grew to be so powerful in Hollywood so quickly because it only takes one or two very public examples like this for every studio chief in town, all of whom are straddling very similar interests and very similar kind of corporate priorities, um, to say, I'm not touching that either. Yeah, and in fact, as I read it in your book, it was even worse than that because you include some quotes from Michael Eisner, who was back then the head of Disney, when he went on this kind of groveling quite pathetic apology tour. And I just want to read one of the quotes that he said to a Chinese official at the time. Uh, Here's what he said. Quote, the bad news is that the film was made. He's talking about Kundun. The good news is that nobody watched it. Here (laughs) I want to apologize. And in the future, we should prevent this sort of thing, which insults our friends from happening. Unquote. Uh, That was gross. And it was the first part of the book, of your book, that reminded me of more recent events where if some business executive or some industry head has risked alienating the Chinese audience because it insulted the Chinese government or said something that they perceive to be out of bounds in China, they start this sort of process of trying to undo the damage. And it includes this quite embarrassing display. And... I read that and I thought, God, if I were a movie maker back then seeing this, I'd be disturbed as hell. And then here's what you write in in that part of the book. You write, quote, China's threats challenged the core tenet of Hollywood. Movies were a business, to be sure, but they were also a vehicle of American expression, an industry where filmmakers were unafraid to take on, were even celebrated for taking on politically charged topics, unquote. This seems like the beginning of what's going to be a really tense uh, and a really kind of perilous interaction between China and the American filmmaking industry. Yeah, I'll say, I mean, I I don't know when 
there is a transcript of that meeting between Michael Eisner and that Chinese official, Xu Rongji, which as an author is a godsend. Um, I, <laughs> I, I can't imagine Michael Eisner knew he was being recorded when <laughs> – because it, I just will say a little behind the scenes. So that, that whole meeting was transcribed and published in a book of meetings that Xu Rongji had with, with officials. And oh so my God! It's available that's, for for anyone to read. And you're right; that's great for a book author to have uh, at your disposal. That's fantastic. And I'm not sure when it was published because I I know that since then those quotes have really gotten Michael Eisner in in quite a bit of hot water. At the time, I don't think people knew the extent of his of his groveling. But um, here's the thing: it worked, and it got Disney back into China. And today. It has a $5.5 billion theme park. It has movies that routinely make $500 or $600 million at the Chinese box office. It is by far the most successful Hollywood studio operating in the market. Yeah. And I guess that almost speaks for itself, right? Like that is the clash of values that's at the center of this book, right? That there is a very real commercial opportunity of the kind that – American executives are really going to feel a ton of pressure to pursue versus, you know, the idea that there is such a thing as artistic integrity, freedom of expression, these kind of core American values. There is a very real, a very direct conflict going on there. I think it's really muzzled the the American film industry. I'm think, been thinking a lot lately about how we will look back on this time in, in 50 or 60 years and, and how some of these executives rush toward China will be remembered because of the values that you, you lay out. I mean, I think a key element here is that you're right that at the time in the 90s, there were certainly people in Hollywood saying, don't allow the Chinese authorities to muzzle Martin Scorsese. We're not going to we're not going to stand for that. Then through other examples in the book through, you know, when anytime there's these these censorship flare-ups, there usually is a little bit of a dust-up and we even start to see politicians in the US speak out against it. But none of these actions and none of, none of this acquiescence was seen as aiding and abetting a state enemy. So I think a lot of the examples that we look back on now we're looking with a different lens than at the time. At the time, I think it was more easily forgiven as the cost of doing business. Maybe it would make people queasy on a, on a free expression front, but it wasn't it wasn't like these Hollywood executives were doing the bidding of a geopolitical rival or yeah. to that point an an ideological rival. It really isn't it's only the past few years I'd say that this this contrast between the West and China and the clash of values, as you put it, has really become clear. Because I would be doing research. I have an example in the book of of changes that were made to a remake of Red Dawn before it was released, and the the editing, the the hastily done editing that was that was made to the film so that China was not the bad guy. So Red Dawn was going to be a remake of a 1980s classic that went by the same title. And in the 1980s version, there were like these Soviet, you know, paratroopers who came onto U.S. soil, invaded the U.S., and then Americans essentially had to fight them off. The remake was originally 
going to be about a Chinese infiltration of the U.S., so on U.S. soil again, and then, uh, you know, groups of Americans fighting them off. And it was going to be made, I think, around the year 2012, if I remember from your book correctly, right around then. Uh, And when you say it being re-edited, the producers of the film got nervous about the portrayal of China as the enemy because, of course, they'd love to be able to sell this movie in China, too. So they switched it to North Korea after the film had been made, all through, like, post-production editing. It's an incredible story, but I wanted to give the background before you sort of explain why it's so significant because it's shocking. It is. It is. I mean, think about that. They took a completed film with Asian actors who thought they were playing Chinese soldiers and made it about a North Korean invasion. It cost them a million bucks to do. It took hours upon hours of swapping out flags and military buttons and rewriting dialogue so that it referenced North Korea instead of China. I mean, it just is a mess. Well, they changed the plot, too. The whole plot was going to be that China had unloaded its holdings of American treasuries, causing huge chaos in the financial markets, and that then after that, there was some conflict, and then there was an invasion or something like that. Exactly, right? exactly, yeah. <laughs> they took it all out. They took it all they out, and they made it this sort of like— After it was done. This implausible North Korean invasion, yeah. And, and, and it's the last time that a major Hollywood movie has been put into production with China as the bad guy. And that was that version wasn't even released, but it was the last time that that a that a major movie was was greenlit with China as the villain. But the reason the reason I bring it up is because when I was doing research on it, the movie started filming around 2010. It came out in 2012, and again, this was reported on at the time. People knew that MGM had done this, that they had gone and and there's these kind of hilarious reviews of film critics like just lampooning the movie because of how little sense it makes as as a North Korean invasion. I kept looking for the political fallout and whether it was on the right or the left, the the politician who would say, this is this is screwed up. This is the CCP deciding how a, an American, I don't know if I would call it piece of art, but you know, an American movie gets made. <laughs> and and um I couldn't find it anywhere. In fact, the only criticism that I could find contemporaneous criticism I could find was with this there's this this militia group in Michigan who who spoke out against it they said it was a cop out and and I thought quite a bit about why that would have been the case why there wouldn't have been more outrage because you can imagine if that story had happened today it would be a very different reaction right you'd have Ted Cruz and AOC speaking out against this and I think it it gets to the point we were making earlier which is that at the time, it wasn't seen as acquiescing to a country that was trying to replace the U.S. or that was positioning itself as an alternative to the Western model, like yeah. as China would, would eventually become. And it, and it allowed a lot of these changes, I think in retrospect, to appear more insidious. Yeah, like sinister, like there was some kind of like acquiescence. Uh, that there was an agenda that Hollywood was completely asleep to. Yeah, and I love this point about the evolution of the ideological conflict here because especially in the late 90s and early 2000s, there was a theory that was quite popular that said that the more you increase economic interdependence between countries, the more you'll have the kinds of benefits that we in the U.S. are quite accustomed to, where there's a lot of trade, there's a lot of commerce, that brings more openness. You combine that with the internet, and it was likely, as the theory went, that 
little by little, you would see an opening up in the political realm as well. And this was something that wasn't just floated by political theorists. Bill Clinton gave a very famous speech back in the year 2000 where he said that this is what was likely to happen in the coming decades. And so there's been a kind of failed hope there. And it all goes back to, uh, to you know, what, what economics might predict about the possibility that the more you have free trade, the more that the benefits go to all parties, that it's a very mutually beneficial thing. And by the way, that's something that like I mostly do believe most of the time. But I think what's happened with the film industry and with China through the decades has been that the details have proved themselves to be extremely complicated and that economic power still really matters and that sometimes it really is going to be intertwined with political goals and geopolitical goals as well. And so you end up with not what I think a lot of American policymakers hoped for, which was the spread of openness, the spread of uh, what I guess you might call American values of liberty, democracy, free speech, and so forth. You end up with a different scenario where actually, because China has become so prosperous and so powerful, its own government's agenda has actually been flowing out of the country and back into the U.S. film industry. So you had a kind of complete reversal of what was hoped for, but nobody could really recognize it back then. Or I shouldn't say nobody because then somebody will point hmm. me to a speech somebody else gave in 2004 or whatever. There were some skeptics back then and good on them. They were right. But that was not the prevailing thinking on what would happen ideologically. We do see things more clearly in hindsight now because we have the benefit of what's happened in the time since. Right. And there were even there were skeptics in China, too, saying we, we should not be letting these this American influence infect our, our young people's brains. When Disney opened its theme park in Shanghai, there were corners of uh, the CCP that said, why are we handing over the hearts and minds of Chinese children to a Western company, a Western capitalist company. And and so you're absolutely right, that intertwining, and I'd, I'd take it one step further, and one reason why I was so excited to use Hollywood as a case study was because we started to also see something that has happened in other industries, which is this kind of replacement that China's own industry, it's in this case its own entertainment industry, grew more and more powerful as it learned from the Hollywood it had given access to. And this idea of technology transfer in, in a lot of industries makes a lot of sense. When I set out to write this book, I, I wanted to ask myself, you know, I understand technology transfer when we're talking about airplane blueprints, but what does technology transfer look like when it's storytelling? And taking it back to Mao, which I, which I don't often do, but I am a lot today, um, <laughs> one, of the, one of the other edicts he would put forth is he would say we must – look to the West and learn how it's done. And there's a dialectic that he and others would reference, which is something along the lines of use the West for its tools, but keep China as the essence. So do not try a an all-out copy-paste operation, but see what you can learn from the West and then apply it to the Communist Party model. And so this this starts to happen as soon as the as the late 90s when um, Titanic comes out and is released in China. The then president of China urges his fellow CCP members to go see it, not only because he thinks it uh, demonizes the rich 
and the upper class in a very helpful way. And and not only because he admires the musicians who famously <laughs> fulfilled their duty and continued to play as the ship sank, but also because mm-hmm. he says we should remember that we are not the only ones who have the power to influence people. And it will take a long time, and, and I think many would argue that it's, it's still taking time for China to have something like a Titanic, but it's trying very hard to do so. Let me put this in concrete terms, though, because you actually do depict the story of Warner Brothers entering into a partnership with a Chinese company uh, called Wanda to essentially build a lot of movie theaters in China, show a combination, I think, of American and Chinese movies. And then after the partnership was already underway, Wanda changed the terms of the deal and said that Warner Brothers now had to take a minority stake and it imposed these other terms that Warner Brothers couldn't agree to. And so it left, but it left only after Wanda had already taken all of the technology secrets for how to build movie theaters and how to do other things in the in the sort of filmmaking and film production and film showing process. Um, so in that case, it was kind of sinister, like that technology transfer, at least in that specific case, that was sinister. That was quite underhanded. No, and I, I, I know of several Warner Brothers executives who are st- who still almost 20 years later get very heated when they talk about <laughs> talk about what had happened because because you're right. And it was an example of how little recourse American officials or American executives have in China. In this case, um, you're right, there were supposed to be these movie theaters that were going to be Warner Brothers branded. Um, they would show all kinds of all kinds of movies, but it was a way for Warner Brothers to help seed a theatrical market in China. And so Wanda, which until then had really specialized in shopping malls, and I have to say, I mean, if, you, if you're going to pick an industry, building shopping malls uh, on the eve of the world's largest middle class forming um, is a pretty good business to be in. So they wanted to expand into to movie theaters. I had a question, which was, you know, how hard is it to build a movie theater? And it turns out there are, there are quite a bit of specifications that you can get into, whether it's, you know, screen to seat ratio, analyzing foot traffic to figure out where exactly to put it. And, and all of that was handed over to Wanda. And then, as you said, the terms of the deal changed. And as is often the case in China, it's really impossible to know if Wanda changed them or if the government told Wanda to change them. In any event, it just became too much of a hassle for Warner Brothers to fight or to stay in. But at that point, Wanda already had the information and would go on to become the largest movie theater chain in China. I want to focus now a little bit on the influence on how movies actually end up on the screen. In other words, how American movies end up being affected by specific kinds of Chinese censorship. Because as these American movies are getting made, uh, the filmmakers and the film producers are worried that they won't actually be able to crack the Chinese market. They won't be allowed in by Chinese censors. And you give a lot of examples. And I, as we, as I went through them, I, I was losing my mind, by the way. I couldn't believe it. Um, so, for example, in Mission Impossible 3, there's a scene that depicts in Shanghai people hanging up their underwear to dry on clotheslines, which is something that is quite common in Shanghai, but the Chinese censors didn't like it, so those scenes were taken out of the movie. Yeah, it made the country, uh, world, made the country look too backwards. 
Yeah, it made it look backwards is what they worried about, right? Uh, a movie called World War Z, which was about like the zombie apocalypse, basically one of the zombie apoc- apocalypse movies had suggested that the virus might have started in China. It turns out quite tragically, that was a prescient notion at the time, but like that had to be taken out because the Chinese censors wouldn't have liked it. Um, Men in Black 3, one of my favorite examples that you give, the memory erasing device was thought to be a metaphor for... Chinese like totalitarianism. So that had to be taken out. Okay. A gay love scene was removed in Cloud Atlas. The censors are very sensitive about depictions of homosexuality in movies. Uh, You know, all these examples in Skyfall, the James Bond movie, which I loved, uh, there's a scene in which a Chinese security guard gets shot, a very small scene, but it depicts a Chinese character in a moment of weakness that gets taken out. I couldn't believe as you were going through these examples, how many movies that I was totally familiar with had had things taken out or changed in some capacity because of worries of Chinese censorship. And again, I'm just giving a limited a limited selection here. Your book has probably hundreds, actually, of, of these examples. And I don't think I had realized just quite how extensively these movies have to be censored because the restrictions that Chinese censors put on these movies are incredibly comprehensive, you know? Right. And and I think the examples you laid out are it, it's such a spectrum, right? Like it goes from the cosmetic, right, like taking out dirty laundry to the thematic or even the metaphorical with the memory wiping device in Men in Black. So you can imagine this takes a while to be absorbed by the studio chiefs, but today, anyone reading a script who's putting a movie into production can anticipate some of these concerns. And some of the examples that you cited, those came back as requests from the Chinese censors. So I don't think anyone releasing Mission Impossible anticipated the laundry being an issue. The censors come back and say, please take that out. World War Z, however, and the scene that implied that this zombie outbreak had originated in China that was taken out of the film before it had even been sent to the censors for approval. Because by the time World War Z came out, I think around 2012 or 2013, studios could anticipate what the issues would be and would preemptively remove them before the film was completed so that they would have a better shot in China. And then, of course, there's there's all these ironic examples, and World War Z is one of them, where the movie was changed to appease China and then didn't even get into China to begin with. Yeah, that, that I think to me was one of the most disturbing points in the book. The idea that the censorship is happening before the censors even see it. Because now it's a kind of, I think you described it as anticipatory censorship. But in a way, it's like a censorship of the imagination, of the creative process itself. And when it reaches that point, things really start to get unnerving. You know, what was your experience of just coming across this and realizing how unbelievably comprehensive and entrenched it was and all of this happening roughly within the last 10 to 15 years? I mean, that's when it really intensified now to the point where people are taking stuff out in the drawing room, like before there is even a movie to discuss, they're taking stuff out. Yeah, I think I think the um, the element of this that I don't know if it disturbed me, but the element that I always kept thinking about was just how easy these decisions were to make and how low the risk threshold became and how quickly it it really sunk. So so put yourself in the in the shoes of one of these studio executives. You might release 12 to 16 movies a year. 
you've got maybe four or five that you really need to get into China. And then you've got of the in those four or five, there might be one or two scenes or lines of dialogue that are jeopardizing those chances. It's a really easy call. You're not going to see yourself as on the front lines of liberal democracy or fighting this broader ideological battle. It's just going to be taking something out that no one's going to miss. You're, I don't think you'd ever really think of it as having the cumulative effect that it has had. And, and in that way, the Hollywood system functions quite parallel to the Communist Party system, where there's also an element, I think, of just complete risk intolerance. You know, no one wants to be the bureaucrat who crosses the line or who, you know, sort of is seen as as operating a little too loosely with the rules. So I think both— or like something gets through and then you get blamed for exactly, it, it Exactly, exactly. I mean, do you, really, do you really want to be the censor who sticks his neck out to, to let this questionable movie in? So, like, if anything's on the bubble, the decision is easy. And there are only a handful of filmmakers who can stand up to these changes um, and who are powerful enough to do so. I think in, in many cases, the changes being made for the Chinese market are out of sight, out of mind. I've heard stories of directors essentially saying, just do what you got to do and don't tell me. Just, don't, just, just cut what you have to cut, send it over, and I don't want to know about it. But you're right, the more insidious examples are those that are changing movies that we're all seeing because of fear that Chinese authorities will will make a stink and not just changing, but then not making certain movies at all. You list some of the things that are meant to be censored uh, and that were listed in a Chinese government document, I can't remember from what year, it might have been 2008, 2009, there's a sequence of like 18 or 19 things that you're not supposed to be able to depict in a movie. And so in addition to the ones we already covered, you also have depictions of spirituality, quote unquote, no bad habits, you know, drug use, drinking, masturbation, uh, no ghosts or time travel, which has led to some really interesting rewrites for movies uh, where the writer thought they were fine and they had to rewrite it because any depiction of time travel would also not pass the censors. Uh, no passive or negative outlooks on life, no harming the environment, no disparaging the police and so forth. And I got to the end of that list, and the first question that came to mind was like, well, what's even left? But the second and more serious question is, what do you do, given that art is supposed to be about trying to understand and trying to navigate the world, given all of our human imperfections? And you have this list that's meant to sanitize things to the point where there almost can't possibly be any really fascinating, deep human drama. Maybe now I'm the one who's being too dramatic, but it really seems like such a desperate, serious, artistic problem, creative problem, that trying to adhere to a list like this would create for artists and for people who want to make movies. Right, and I think, I think it removes any complexity, certainly from the portrayal of China. Um, and over the past 25 years, I think China Hawks would tell you that the CCP has ensured that China's rise has been unimpeded by anything Hollywood could do, right? There's, there's never been a Hotel Rwanda-type film. There's never been any cinematic exploration of China that doesn't make it look like a 
country of shiny metropolises where the police are always keeping things in line. That is the that is essentially the narrative, uh, the cinematic narrative of China over the past 20 years. And I think even setting aside the power that a well-made Hollywood film about Tiananmen Square or Xinjiang province could have, and it's the way it, the Hollywood has often introduced that history or those issues to more casual viewers, even setting that aside, I think that lack of complexity has also fueled some of the animosity we see between the two countries. I think there's um, certainly over the past two years, there have been examples of a lack of empathy between the two countries. And I have to imagine that part of it is just kind of an unfamiliarity with China because of what you described is just sort of not being able to explore life there or its stories in any shade of gray. Yeah, before I forget, Eric, I also want to be clear about something. There is nothing at all wrong, obviously, with making movies that you want lots of people to see or or with making movies that target a big audience of Chinese filmgoers. What we're describing here is the problematic way that the Chinese government censorship compels those movies to incorporate that censorship into what they make so that they can be allowed to reach that big audience. And it just makes the movies overall less interesting. I mean, how could this not? And so I want to ask about this really dramatic contrast that you lay out in the book between the movies that Paramount Pictures, obviously a very famous film studio, used to make and the movies that it was making in the 2000s. So this is the film studio that used to make movies like Sunset Boulevard, Chinatown, The Godfather. I mean, absolute all-time classics in American film cinema. And then in the 2010s, (laughs) it's maybe Signal Achievement was making Transformers Age of Extinction, which is a movie that, you know, it was done as part of this new era of appealing to the Chinese market and therefore making a movie that would not upset the Chinese government. In fact, it was made kind of in partnership with Chinese filmmakers Uh, I think some of it was shot in China and so forth. Right. And I think, you know, for any listener who goes to check what's playing at the multiplex on a Friday and thinks it's all a bunch of junk, I will say, you know, China's not the only reason that that you're seeing more and more Transformers of the world being made, but it's a major it's a major one. And there are a couple of reasons for that. One is, as you said, just sort of the globalization of the film industry and the idea that if you're putting out these movies now, you really have to spend upwards of $200 million to make them. And then you have all these other commitments to marketing them. The the expense is so high that the the grosses have to be astronomical to, to turn a profit. And another key difference between the Paramount of yore and the Paramount of today, I'd say, was is also just sort of the stakeholders. I mean, Paramount is now part of Viacom CBS, um, a much larger conglomerate. It is actually, I mean, like, it, it has this brand equity, of course, but its returns are a fraction of what its corporate siblings are, are doing. And it has to answer to those corporate interests as well. And that's going to mean making the biggest movies possible. And Transformers Age of Extinction becomes this amazing case study because it is absolutely a time when the fever dream 
of China is just at an all-time high. And it's post-Red Dawn, so Hollywood has learned what to avoid, and it becomes this case study in what can it do to appeal to Chinese audiences. So you're right, it films scenes there. It strikes all these product placement deals. It lets Chinese authorities change the script so that they can they will approve its release. They host a reality show, and this is also, this really, there was like one sentence about it in the book which broke my heart, but it is like some of the most surreal YouTube viewing you could ever imagine. There's this whole reality show that Michael Bay and others drop by to cast four roles in the film. I mean, this oh just God. massive all-out <laughs> all promotional effort to to make money in the market and sort of to, I mean, I'm echoing myself here with the, with the Michael Eisner anecdote, but it worked. Yeah, yeah. And I, I guess I want to ask also about a point that you made at the beginning of your response there, which is that this is not all about China. Like the, the sort of shift in the kinds of movies that Hollywood's making some of it really does seem to be about direct threats to the business model of film. And so, yes, the you know the the market in China would have had its allure no matter what because it's so big. But at the same time, the kind of desperation, if that's the right word that you've described in your book, might have also been brought about by some other things that are happening. And maybe things are not quite as terrible as like I'm making them out to be like, you know, those streaming companies make a lot of really great stuff. They make a lot of really great movies themselves, right? Like they are in a sense, film studios, they have film studios of their own. It's not like everything has, you know, disappeared and and been subject to Chinese censorship now. Plus, we haven't even talked about like, I don't know, other foreign film industries, which you could say are maybe better than they've ever been. Um, they're just not Hollywood. So can you just kind of like talk about like some of that complexity there of what really is causing this shift from these really interesting movies that Hollywood used to make to this enormous emphasis on these tentpole franchises and things of that nature? Right. I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. China's timing could not have been better. Hollywood executives really wake up to China around 2009 with the release of Avatar. Avatar comes out. It makes more than $200 million in the Chinese market. This is a number that was almost seen as mathematically impossible. <laughs> and it's so in China, you're right. We've got this market that would just be appealing by virtue of its scale in a vacuum. But at the same time, the DVD market in the US is collapsing. And this is rather insane to think about now, but DVDs were really keeping the lights on at a lot of studios. They would turn even the the lowest grossing film profitable because they were so cheap to produce and so popular among consumers. I mean, I read some really rather surreal news accounts from the early 2000s of lines forming outside Walmart because Finding Nemo was coming out on DVD and the studio moving like three million units in a day. Walmart, I mean, I can say this because it's an economics podcast, but Walmart would treat them as a loss leader. They would buy them at $17 and sell them at $15 because they would generate so much foot traffic that they would make it work that to have a loss on every sale. Oh, I didn't know that. They were losing money. They were losing money. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And so you're absolutely right. The timing could not have been better. I think 
Today, we're at an interesting place in China's leverage because the rise of streaming does mean that these media companies have to think about China a little bit less. And, and Netflix, for one example, is not operating in China and they're never going to, you know, barring some miracle. They're not operating in China. So they have a bit of a longer leash when it comes to the kind of programming that they can host and they can pursue. Certainly, though, you know, like Apple here just won an Oscar. You can imagine Apple is not going to be making a movie that alienates Chinese officials anytime soon, given not only the consumer base it has, but the supply chain it has in in the country. So I think in one way, streaming is reducing China's leverage. On the other, streaming is requiring studios to invest more and more in the smaller and smaller number of theatrical releases that they make. So going forward, it looks like if you're operating like a universal, we're going to have two tracks. We're going to have a track for streaming movies, and we're going to have a track for theatrical releases. And the track for theatrical releases is going to be a lot less crowded than it was pre-COVID. We might be looking at a future where studios are only releasing four or five movies theatrically a year, as opposed to, you know, 12 to 18 that's going to mean that those four or five movies every year have to be as big as possible. And that's going to still require China. I think to just end on a really depressing note, all of the studios, regardless of whether or not they still have access to that box office, are going to be owned by larger corporate interests that still want to maintain healthy relations with China. And to our case study with the the Dalai Lama films, we've learned that Chinese officials will economically punish a company any way it can. And so I don't see, I don't necessarily see the streaming boom leading to some kind of boom in in free expression when it comes to the stories that we tell about China. And taking it a step further, I think that's probably the case in so many Western industries right now. And And, and one of the things that I learned as I was doing this research was just just how often Hollywood was an early student to the lessons that Tesla and H&M and Daimler Chrysler are learning now about what concessions you have to make to maintain access to the Chinese economy. Yeah. And Eric, I know this is a big ask given what you just said, but I'd love to try to close with Some discussion of whether there are any happier undercurrents here, happier trends that I might just be missing, because obviously the dominant trends that you describe in the book are really bothersome. Uh, The idea that the economic interaction between these two countries, the deepening economic interdependence between the U.S. and China, which I think in other cases, lots of other cases, does lead to shared widespread prosperity, but which in this case has revealed this clash of values, a clash between openness and censorship, between commerce and freedom. It's just really dispiriting. So if there is some part of the story that offers you maybe even a little bit of hope, I'd love to close with that. Uh, Maybe somebody's working on a solution somewhere. Maybe there are counter pressures that have started exerting themselves. Anything really. I will take anything that might make our listeners feel a little better than I think we've made them feel to this point. Yeah, well, I, I think I think um, the optimistic note I would strike is a relatively recent development, which is I finished the book in late 2020, and it seemed like 
when it came to concerns over these values that that you're discussing, a lot of it really just lived on the right. And in politically, I think it was mostly a Republican conversation that was being had. And I've noticed just even in the the two months that this this book has been out, that it seems to be more and more of a bipartisan concern. And it feels like the temperature has gone down in a way that has allowed more across the aisle questions being raised. To be honest, I, I you know, I knew I was writing a book about conservatives' two favorite targets, right? China, China and Hollywood. And and it seems as though just in just in the response that it's also something that progressives and those on the left want to be talking about as well. Especially even I'd say even the past month with Putin's invasion of the Ukraine, it seems like there's been this reignition of questions about Western values, the values of free expression, the values that I think a lot of journalists stand for, and what is lost in the kind of censorship that we're talking about, what is lost, that it is really just becomes about more than movies so quickly. And it seems like the people having a conversation about that, it's it's a more diverse and I I would think also a little bit more um, nuanced conversation than it was just even a couple of years ago. Yeah, and and partly because of, or at least boosted by your book, people are thinking about this and they're working on it. And I think that's actually a good place to land. That's optimistic, but it's not unrealistic either about how quickly um, we're going to be able to do something about these themes. Um, But people aren't going to believe me, Eric. We have only actually discussed like half your book, even though we've talked for quite a while. There's actually quite a lot left in there for people to to get out of it. So I am going to strongly recommend it. Uh, it's one of my favorite books of the year. Red Carpet, Hollywood, China, and the Global Battle for Cultural Supremacy. Eric Schwartzel, thanks for being on The New Bazaar. Really appreciate it. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. And that's our show for today. You can find links to Eric's book, Red Carpet, in the show notes for today's episode. The New Bazaar is a production of Bazaar Audio from me and executive producer Amy Keene. Adrian Lilly is our sound engineer, and our music is by Scott Lane and DJ Harrison of Subfloor Studio. Please follow or subscribe to The New Bazaar on your app of choice. And if you like today's show, please leave us a review or tell a friend. That really is the best way that people can find out about us. And that goes to ensuring that we can keep making the show. If you want to get in touch, I'm on Twitter as at Cardiff Garcia, or you can email us at hello at bizarreaudio.com. And we'll see you next week. <laughs>